This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. A college admissions cheating scandal has shocked America. But our teachers say, you think wealthy parents buying their kids' way into college is bad? What about all the legal ways the admissions process is unequal? Plus, grit. It's a trendy term in education, but our teachers say there's a lot wrong with how it's being used in schools and classrooms. Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, you're starting your spring break. Yep, it's great. And so you won't be teaching for another week. I won't be. But when you go back, what will you be teaching? Third grade, still. Third grade. All of it. All of it. Uh, David, personally, you are also starting your spring yeah. break. Yeah. So when you go back to school in a week, what will you be teaching? Math and computer science. And Luann Fox. High school. Ending Sorry, spring break. You are ending your spring break. So you'll be going back to school the day after we tape this. And what Indeed. are you teaching? I teach high school English. Uh, so Luann, David, Maddie, you're all three educators in the Kansas City metro area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. A widespread cheating scandal has laid bare the inequities of the college admissions process. Dozens of wealthy parents, including high-profile actresses Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman, are accused of bribing college athletic coaches, ACT and SAT test proctors, and university admissions officials in order to get their kids into elite institutions like USC, Stanford, and Yale, among others. The fallout has been immediate and harsh. Coaches have been fired, parents have been arrested, and the American public is nearly universally disgusted with this story. But this case, as dramatic and salacious as it is, underscores a much bigger problem. Just how unequal the playing field can be for kids vying for university seats, especially at elite schools. The advantages wealthy and mostly white students have over their poorer peers and peers of color is enormous, and most of the time the inequities are more commonplace, systematic, and maybe most importantly, legal. We have three teachers here today, two of them high school teachers, and so we just thought it would be an interesting um, idea to get their take on this story, and there's already been a lot of chatter in the studio before we began taping about this story, because I think it's hit a lot of buttons for educators. So maybe, let me just ask, as teachers who are in the business of um, preparing kids for college, especially two of you, that's a very urgent mission because you're high school teachers, but even Maddie, an elementary school teacher, it's on your mind. Um, what about this story about um, cheating on college admissions? Um, what sticks out to you the most? What, what has been on your mind as you've read the developments, which we should say are still happening as we're taping this? What's been on your mind? What, what's stuck out to you? I think just the display of how many levers people of privilege specifically 
white people have to get into the colleges that they want. And the fact that the cheating scandal is focusing on like a big one. Oh, you can pay to get into it. But there are so many other things I personally had access to in high school or that I know a lot of other wealthy Americans have access to in high school that are completely legal. For me, it's labeling one thing as illegal and all of these other things still exist, but they're like, oh, well, but that's not that's not inequity or that doesn't count or that's just people using their resources more wisely than other people. But it's like there's so much more than what's just in that case. I don't know. It's still just mm-hmm. it kind of leaves me feeling like there's a lack of awareness to just how much more there is right. that people well, use to get into college. And Does that make what, sense? Yeah. And Maddie, what strikes me when you talked about lovers was like that the lovers existed even at like proctors doctoring tests as well, which is highly illegal. But I mean, extending extending to that coaches and um, but the coaches, I mean, having a coach for your SAT coaches or for your SAT or your ACT, that's an OK thing to do. No, I think yeah. I was thinking you know about I mean? athletic coaches yeah, athletic that, uh, yeah. that would yeah. that would coaches. that would basically say, you know, uh, a student uh, was a member of a team that the student was not a member of, um, yeah. you know, that kind played. of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I mean, that I mean, it's it. just like the, the reach of all of those levers. I mean, and the display of how many of them there are is amazing. I mean, yeah. the absurdity is super gr- That's like what makes the whole narrative yeah. so gripping. You're like, this is absurd. But like underneath the absurdity, I'm like, you know, like there's a lot of other things, too, that's almost more damaging and more widespread that it's great that people can have a coach. It just is so divided by wealth. And by race and class, mm-hmm. like that, I find that a little bit more. Yeah, I also uh, think it's a yeah. testament to how brazen people with yeah. immense wealth are, um, in terms of having used those means to probably get whatever they wanted in the past, and just exercising that as a you know again lever to basically get what you want on the situation. Like hearing some of the transcripts of those conversations and how they were even joking or laughing about kind of trying to pull off these you know, legal acts and not thinking at all about the implications of them. Yeah, that was painful. Yeah, David, to uh, to Maddie's point, though, I mean, the, the brazenness of this, the baldness of it, does it distract from what might be more deep-seated system? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. I just think it took something like this to hopefully start opening the doors to those conversations because I wasn't surprised at all by it. I'm lucky enough to have been tapped to transition out of certain circles like I grew up in South Central Los Angeles I grew up in poverty but I had enough to get by but I can point out very specific opportunities that I was able to get plugged into that completely changed the circles within I operated the people who knew me the influence I had and the opportunities I was provided and I think when you talk about people who are living constantly in those spaces right and not having any awareness of like how much of an upper hand you already have, right? Or for those who just grow up in communities like my own who actually don't get an opportunity to get tapped, to like not understand it either. I think that ignorance exists on both perspectives, but to your point, it obviously favors those Mm who tend to be more white because even if they don't have as much, they're not seen as having less upon an assumption, but also obviously like wealthier people tend to be white people as well. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know- Like if I walked into a room, the first assumption would be, I'm probably not poor. That's, that, that would like- yeah. But that's an advantage that or, I would have at a college Or they interview, would focus more you know? on your capacity and your capability rather than right. seeing you as, like, oh, lesser how, than. Yeah. Right. There right. wouldn't be a questioning of, 
how did you get into yeah. they would just assume yeah. oh you must be a hard worker you must be so what what's your best subject like yeah. we would be able to go straight to that conversation and it did yeah. like when i was interviewing for colleges and things like that that's exactly that's exactly what happened to me well, that's the flip side of this yeah. conversation that, that I think the nation is starting to have, maybe as David alluded to. But like, um, are the, they the, though? The the disgust. Sorry, like, <laughs> I immediately pushed back on that because I'm like, I'm hoping. Yeah. I yeah. hope that I. I guess we are, and some. I think that that's great. I don't know. Maybe this is like a segue. Well, I think it's the classic down, but the number like, and I and I hate that they use like. Well, I don't hate. I just it's frustrating that. The number that's being thrown around about the number of people who are like at least known to participate in this incident right. is fifty, because I feel like the number's small enough that a lot of people like kind of play it into the classic like isolated incident trope. You know, mm-hmm. like you talk about like an unarmed black team being shot. Oh, what were the individual circumstances of mm-hmm. that situation that led to that cop doing that action? Right, and like that line of questioning and that mindset about it is always like, oh, this is an isolated incident. Although we know that this has happened dozens amongst dozens of times. But right. if that person looked different, then the way we would manage that situation would have been completely different. David, you also work at a charter school here in Kansas City that serves mostly students of color. I guess even before this scandal, how, how do your students view the fairness of the admissions process? Do they feel like they're getting a fair shake? I think we have learned those levers, right? Even though we serve a student body that is primarily African-American, we, I think, are very intentional about, like, from ninth grade on trying to make sure our kids are checking certain boxes, right? We have, like, a minimum number of volunteer hours, right? And obviously, like, all schools have those, but ours is, like, a designated number that's going to make them a lot more of a competitive college applicant than most. We have SAT tutoring or ACT tutoring built into some of our sections of different classes and programs. So, like, we, I think, understand that to be competitive in that system, we have to, like, not game it per se, but be a lot more intentional about providing those extra supports and resources so that on paper kids are presenting the best version of themselves because there's so many different things that in a lot of cases don't allow for them to do that. So I think we try to do as much mitigation of that as possible, and I think I think we've been pretty successful with that, but, you know, it's not perfect. Have your students reacted to this story? Have they talked about it? I teach mostly ninth and 10th graders, yeah. and this past week was so crazy with the weather that I actually get a lot of time <laughs> to unpack it with them. No, but, like, it's, it's a bummer because, like, I... I have been thinking about it, but like we've been so. What if I came in and was like, my third graders are up. freaking out about this story? <laughs> no, but like I, I haven't had a chance to unpack it with them. But I mean, I know when we get back, especially with my one senior section of statistics, we're going to be talking about that. Like I'm going to try to get get some numbers and try to like, you know, dissect some of it. Even so. Luann, you had something to say. So um, I've taught a person who's gone to MIT. He's a junior this year. He's a student of color, and there's a sophomore at Yale, um, and she is Caucasian. And I know both of those students, who are my past students, got through on um, SAT scholarships, PSAT scholarships, and then I think both of them took the SAT as well. And I remember their college application essays and going over it with them, and I remember just how painstaking they were about trying to get um, items done on uh, a resume that would actually, like, paint them as a rounded student and they, they both worked. Um, they, while my school district is known as a school district that has some means, both of these students within that school district, I would say did not have as much means as their peers. And I think that if they were interviewed, they would say 
that they were very lucky because they're accepted and, and they have now doors open to them that that I know that they worked hard to to push open and they're still working hard. But they they definitely view themselves as as lucky more so than deserving though I think even though they'll tell you how hard they worked and and they're surrounded by people in their environments where they go to school right now who probably didn't work as hard because they know what the money looks like that they're they're around on the East Coast but they don't have yeah. it themselves. Uh, before we got on the mic, Maddie, you were talking about uh, mm-hmm. your own experience as a high school student mm-hmm. um, in the St. Louis area at a private high school. Um, and one thing that I've been thinking a lot about in the aftermath of this, um, I, I guess, are, yes, the 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 nature of this scandal itself, but also just the more seemingly uh, mundane and legal ways in which wealthy and privileged kids get advantages in college admissions. Um, and we've talked about it. I mean, they get ACT, SAT tutors. They can um, go to expensive prep classes. Um, they have more opportunities to take AP and college prep courses in high school. Um, beyond that, they're more frequently admitted to elite schools through things like legacy admissions. Can we break down the difference uh, among students and how they go through the admissions process, what kind of help they can get? I mean, you were even talking about some of your experiences in high school yourself as a high school student. Yeah. Existing in that system as a kid, as a young adult, really, and realizing that I never even, like, took those blinders off. Like, I was hanging out with my friends. I was, you know, comparing what what did you bring for lunch and let's swap at the lunch table. But, like, I never really, like... (laughs) saw what was happening. So I viewed all of those mundane things as a checkbox. And now in hindsight, like meeting people from different backgrounds, meeting and having friends of different races now, like I never did that growing up. Everyone around me was white and privileged, mm-hmm. which like looking back, I think that I I like labeled that as bad but now I, I, I'm labeling it more as, you know, like this isn't a checks bo- a checkbox. It's a checks box. What if? Just like eat a bunch of rice checks. No, but for real. <laughs> but it's like, your spring break. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but labeling it is like it's not. I think I, if I went back and taught at that school, I think something I would do as a teacher and as an adult in that moment with those kids would be to really explicitly say this is neither a checkbox nor is it a hoop. This is a lever mm-hmm. that you are pulling on. And because yeah. of that, that's helping you get to where you're going. Mm-hmm. Don't like you cannot disregard the fact mm-hmm. that when you check this racial box on your application, right. when you go to this tutoring class that I'm saying you need to go to after school, I think that I wish that I wish that an adult had done that and and labeled that privilege for me because Mm -hmm. I think it would have kind of busted me out of the gate in high school as being a more active advocate Mm -hmm. for crap. Like, these are things I can pull on. I didn't give two Fs in high school. I didn't pull on half of the things I had available to me, nor was I outraged at the fact that I had immediate, uninhibited access to it Mm -hmm. and all of my other peers across America who aren't white, who aren't privileged, don't have that. And that is a travesty. Mm-hmm. Like that I think that labeling those things as what they are as what they are, you know, like my mom saying, Oh, make sure yeah. you go back and check your essay. Right. Make sure that you take it to this person that I signed you up with to go and, and peer edit it. I was like, oh mom, like why are you making me put this on my to-do list instead of being like This is available to me. This is a legal process that people can do. It's Mm -hmm. pushing me so far forward 
And I need to start getting way more loud, way more vocal, way more explicit about mm. everyone needs to have it. And yeah. so you, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so like I recognize what you have and when, then fight for others. When to you have talk that about too. not understanding your own bias, I think, I mean, that really hits home to me because I was just thinking how I used to think I'm a first generation college student and I would, I would have said in years past, you know, I'm marginal and, and I'm different because mm. um, I didn't have class to back me up. Um, I, I didn't have parents who helped me through the process. I got to a nice college and I got there on four scholarships and I got there, you know, I have that story, right, that that you have where it's like, oh, I did really well on this national test and I did really well here and I was this scholar here and I did that. And I think me of years ago would have said, you know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I'm the one that got out there and I'm trying to figure out if I want to get out of $8 an hour out of my town forever, I'm going to have to go to college and I'm going to have to make something of myself because I didn't have parents really who could help me do that. And that's a story. And I get that. But what I have now learned over those last few years is like, well, how did my whiteness actually help me? And it right. did. Of course it did. Because I was never taught not to be inquisitive. So even though I couldn't have parents who helped me, I know that I had an, a bevy of other adults who could help me. My teachers who had interest in me, uh, because I was a white girl, because I was pleasant, because I'm like from the Midwest, because I would ask questions. So I know that I well, did got your, Did help. your school have those things? I, like when David was talking about how his school has those checkboxes, levers in place. It's like, because you work at a charter school, yes? Mm -hmm. So I don't see those levers existing in public schools. Yeah, yeah no, we and have that latitude. That's the crap part is like, like, yeah, like individual personality accounts for a lot of it. But systematically speaking, think like social worker versus counselors, Right. Or just counts like having a college counselor versus a counselor whose day is tied up substitute teaching mm -hmm. in a classroom right. because that school is experiencing all of these other issues and people don't want to sub for them. Yeah. Like I never my counselor was not a counselor. I'm going to help you with this X, Y and Z personal issue. My counselor was a college admissions coach mm -hmm. yeah, David, like that's how they function at earlier, my school you you had some doors open for you yeah. when you were in high school mm -hmm. um and that allowed you to you you went on to a big state school wisconsin which you've you've talked about on past podcasts yeah. um what were those doors like what happened for you man so much um so i received the Posse Foundation Scholarship when i was in high school shout out to Posse. um it's an amazing program basically what they do or the the, the origin of the program came out of the idea that this um, counselor heard a student say, I wouldn't have dropped out of college if I had my posse with me. And so she helped kickstart this program, which would send students in cohorts, aka posses, to different colleges around the country. And they try to focus and put a cachet on those, you know, top 150. A um, really great program. But I mean, the moment I got into that scholarship program, my, my life changed completely because I was in the same rooms as benefactors of that program, right? People who have used their like, wealth and advantage to like help finance my education and so I was able to talk to those people and let them know what my passions were right like oh I'm an African-American interested in STEM oh I know someone who is ahead of this you know company I can get you connected to them like immediately just being in a different room and seeing the opportunities that um, I got connected to so you know as you mentioned earlier Luann, like I feel tremendous privilege and, and fortune for 
being found by them because I know that set off a series of different opportunities for me that um, I've tried to do my best to take advantage of, but also now I replicate for others. But I think when you don't have that perspective, it's very hard to see that as privilege. That's the norm. And so you don't have that inclination to maybe pay it forward in the same way that someone else does. And I think that's the, the, the real, like, part of this conversation that, that is sometimes so disheartening, right? Like, I feel like for those who have so much already to see the need to help others is not the norm. Like, there are clearly people who did it, right? Like, those same people help finance me through college, so I understand that. But, like, you know, that's not the case for every student and I also feel like there were plenty of other students who were just as gifted, if not more gifted than myself, who still didn't have access to those opportunities. And like, I know some of those friends and I see what they do and like, you know, that, that they, they just didn't get those opportunities. And so they've had to make the best of what they've had. But, you know, it wasn't like wasn't mm-hmm. the same. The, you know, the flip side of this conversation where, uh, you know, people have been expressing disgust over these wealthy white parents who have, you know, bought their kids way into college. The flip side to that conversation, I think a lot of people are also having is um, analyzing the, the, the skepticism that's often, um, that often meets uh, people of color who go to college. Um, is, there's that there's a conversation about affirmative action. Yeah. And I, I wonder, how does this scandal, if at all, affect that other conversation? And, and I also wonder about your experiences going to Wisconsin, if you ever, if you ever, met that or, or faced that skepticism or people questioning your validity of being there? Yeah. I operated in enough white spaces in college to put myself in a little bit of a bubble, so I think I was less privy to that than some of my peers, and that's a whole conversation for another time. But, again, the focus on the scholarship program was diversity, so I was, like, my main core group of people were students of color who were there, and from hearing their different experiences and having a few encounters of my own, like, you know, I'm 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 a 6'5 African-American male, right? So am I supposed to take offense when the first thing you ask me is whether or not I'm a student on, on, like a student athlete on scholarship or if I tell you I'm here on scholarship without specifying what type of scholarship that you're going to assume it's athletic rather than like leadership academic, you know? And so I think sometimes I wore a chip on my shoulder because I would look for reasons to be offended, but I have some very clear, (laughs) I would think, like clear-cut cases of people assuming that I didn't, belong in this space. I mean, also for myself as a, as a person who majored in STEM, I was consistently one of maybe two, if not the only African-American in a lot of my classes. And not that that is everything, but when you talk about finding a sense of belonging, it's hard to do that when, you know, you're the only person in the room and you know others might think you're the only reason you're there is because, you know, you were fitting some sort of quota. And interestingly, you also said before we got on the mics, um, that even at a, a big state school like Wisconsin, you encounter people or met people or knew people who, um, like their family's name was on a building, or they yeah you know, there, there were there were people who who were going to school there, your peers mm-hmm. who you yeah got, you got the very real sense that you know their passage to college had had definitely been smoothed no for by sure their family's absolutely money. I definitely remember having um, friends who, as I would learn more about them, had parents who were very well to do and they were just you know like. And, and I think that just affected their lives in that they had tons of opportunities and they took advantage of them and you could see their capability and their, and their rightness. But for as many students as I saw who fit that bill, I also felt like I was in close contact with peers who didn't seem to take that opportunity seriously. And I, I got the impression that they're only there because their families were notable and noteworthy alumni who may have 
made a donation to a building and had their name slapped on a wall or something like that, you know? And so you see those things and, and, and I don't know if it's fair for me to place that assumption, but at the very least, they did not operate with the same urgency and place the same priority on that experience as I know anyone who came from my scholarship program did mm-hmm. or another multitude of peers who, like, I think have that sense of what's at stake. As we wrap up this conversation, I've, I've been struck by the fact that all three of you at, at one point or another brought up your own um, college experiences or your college admissions experiences. Is that why this story is so personal? Because this kind of gets to the heart of, uh, I think, a lot of our own experiences and personal identities about who we are and what makes us who we are, um, the college we went to, what we studied, um, how we got there. Um, is that what makes this story so, I think, um, personal and, and even grotesque, right? It's, I mean, it's disgusting um, a lot, what, what these families did and, and how you and how we take it as people who have also gone to college. I think, I think so. I think you, it just kind of hurts a little bit because you – you want to know that, um, or at least you want to feel that that it mattered. You know that you, that you went to college and that you worked hard, and that you want to think that other people did that too. You know, and and, and just that uh, you earned whatever you achieved, and as opposed to having it being given to you or having it being given to somebody next to you, it just it does doesn't it, feel right. For any of you, does it damage your trust in the system you're sending your students into or pushing your students towards? I would say it adds more fuel yeah, to I, my beliefs that you already need to be critical of any and all systems, right? You don't need to be a <laughs> anarchist per se, but like you need to, I don't know, examine systems critically. I've always done that. And I think with a case like this, right, when you talk about the timing of this along with the affirmative action cases that have been working their ways up and down different courts, specifically the one involving Harvard and stuff like that, it's really, it's really frustrating. It's really upsetting because... I think we don't do enough as is to make it a point to give students with less more advantages to thrive and succeed and to see so many people seeing that as a handout or as something that they deserve, right? And, and I, think, mm-hmm. I think we do need to have a conversation about making sure our, our indicators of like what is having less is robust, right? Because race is super important, mm-hmm. but class is also really important. As long as along with a bunch of other things. Right. But to put to think that we can operate in this vacuum where like meritocracy runs all when the playing field wasn't level to begin with. And there's so many people who are vehemently against something like affirmative action and to see something like this where it's such a clear, obvious example of those having more using everything they have to get more. Right. Rather than like helping others and. I don't know. I feel like that's generally the way we run. And to your point, Maddie, I don't feel like enough people see that. Mm -hmm. But just knowing that like. It's so hidden. But just knowing that like you have these two polar perspectives in that for all the opportunities that I feel like affirmative action may have helped others get to step into places where they didn't belong to thrive and succeed and to know that people didn't see them as belonging there and to know that people who probably don't belong there have paid or bought their way right. into those spaces. It's well, one well, can system's you demo- under a microscope yeah. and the other system is completely and purposefully hidden yeah. and Thank unchecked. You. I couldn't have said it And anymore. so that, that I think that yeah. is like, does it damage it? I'm like, no, it doesn't damage it. I think that it's like, you know, the lottery tickets, yeah, where you like do a scratch off 
Everyone, yep. yes, 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 going yes, to go yes, somewhere. Maddie's famous metaphor. I mean, but can you democratize and have a meritocracy at the same time? No, I mean, absolutely, that's really what, no. That's that's exactly it, right? You're either democratizing or you're going to have the meritocracy. And on what is that really based? Because I think that we, it'd be great if at the basis we could get rid of that notion that like people are better just because they're people. I mean, like that whole Harvard, we we have the best people. Yeah. Um, I yeah. try so hard when I talk about AP writing, I'll talk about the kids' writing versus the kids. I'll say things like, you know, it's the way the writing is assessed. It's about the writing. It's about mm. this skill. It's not about you. And I think that gets lost at college, right? I'm yeah. not a good enough person to go or I'm uh, because I could buy my way in. I'm good. I, yeah. I should buy yeah. my way in because I'm a, I'm that, I'm better than you. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know we're supposed <laughs> to move on, but I just, I just keep. You guys keep giving me more things to think about, but I think about like my students and like yeah. college admissions are like everything to them. Mm-hmm. Like it's so big, and I mean, I, well, I can think about no, it is for a lot of our students. Like they see that as like the only alternative, right? Um, and, and that's a whole nother conversation to unpack. But but I think strong evidence would suggest that that's still the strongest predictor of how you're going to do in the future. But like for so many of our kids, right? Like who have their dream schools, who like give their all to get into college X and not to get in, right, and, and to deal with that devastation, right? And our students are, are, are tremendously resilient, uh, dare I say gritty. Um, Hold that thought. <laughs> Hold that thought. But, but the point is, like, just knowing how much they care yeah. about those things, right, like how much valuation they place upon that, it's, it makes sense. And I think in, in, like, our modern society that is understandable, but also how do we shift the narrative so that, you know, even though, Certain schools and colleges may have a cachet understanding that, like, what you do at that institution is sometimes just as important. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, some would say it takes grit to apply for and get into an elite college. So grit is the subject, in fact, of our next conversation. Few concepts in education in recent years have been as trendy as the notion of grit. Our modern and academic use of the term was first coined about a decade ago by University of Pennsylvania researcher Angela Duckworth. And she defined grit as a blend of passion and perseverance leading towards a long-term goal. Duckworth Through her research, uh, talking to subjects like Ivy League undergrads or West Point cadets or National Spelling Bee contestants, came up with a grit scale to measure just how gritty a person can be in pursuit of their goals. Now, applied to education, grit has had a simple and compelling logic. Students may be able to overcome challenges, say extreme poverty, by working hard and finding a hidden passion that allows them to succeed and pass the big test or graduate or go on to college. But a growing chorus of critics say this conception of grit is wrong and even harmful. Even Duckworth herself admits schools and teachers are oftentimes misusing her grit theory in often well-intentioned pursuits of motivating and inspiring their students. Um, First, maybe just a bit of housekeeping, but I I would just like to know, first of all, if if any of you... um, 
Um, have you used grit in your schools or with your students? If there's been any kind of formalized approach or trainings on it, um, ha- had read about it, been trained on it? Uh, has your school used grit before or talked about it? We did in, a book in, study on it. All right. So on that, the book. Yeah. All three of you? Yeah. Have it in some ways yeah. kind of talked about it or? We haven't done a book study, but yeah. a few years ago, our whole school rolled out a, you know, a system on at professional development days about like how to be gritty and how to teach our students to be gritty. That has gone away. We've kind of boomeranged a little bit, I think, and uh, haven't done that. But I mean, since, but a few years ago. Now you're teaching something. your kids how to be lazy. <laughs> oh I don't think, yeah. I Actually, think. it's really hard right now to balance that against mm-hmm. the mental health crises that yeah. our students seem to be having, and especially, to be honest, um, some affluent students because they're just um, a little a little fragile and, and, and worked up about a, about a lot of things. And so we're, we're mostly trying to temper situations and trying to help students uh, carry their loads better so we don't talk about grit as much as we talk about trying to help them through crisis after crisis. Yeah, we don't... My school hasn't really... I don't know. We haven't had any formal training around the concept of grit, but knowing our student demographic, I think we operate around the assumption that they already have a tremendous amount of grit just by being there Mm -hmm. because our students are dealing with so much... If you're not part of a community that sees that applying persistence and diligence is ever going to pay off for you, then you sit there and you wonder why you would do that. Yeah, It's almost like it reminds me of that Frederick Douglass piece where it's like, what is the 4th of July to the the American Negro? Negro. It's like, Mm -hmm. what what does that actually mean? I'm I'm not a participant in this. And if if I'm a member of of, of an oppressed class that's just basically going to be like, I'm going to have all these levers against me. Do I really see that if I just stick to it, it's yeah. it's going to yeah. pay off? That has been one of the angles of criticism of Duckworth's concept of grit, um, focusing on whom the message is being packaged to and how. Um, I want to uh, get into a little bit. Ethan Reese, a researcher at Stanford University, he wrote a piece for the Washington Post a couple of years ago, kind of nailing this criticism. He, he points out that grit has become extremely popular, especially at inner city charter schools, as a way to encourage and inspire kids who often come from um, challenging home lives, face extreme poverty. Maybe they have to navigate um, neighborhoods that are violent. Uh, but Reese says that um, that using grit in these schools in these contexts can often be patronizing, even pointless, because kids in these life situations clearly um, already have a lot of grit, and that spending school time on such character education may actually be depriving them of much-needed academic content. Mm-hmm. Um, would teaching grit, like formally teaching grit or having character education in your schools be a waste of time? I think that that's like, that's the critique that resonates with me is like there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes down from like either central office or a book study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're like, teach grit, teach this 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 and this but like spending an hour you know like doing a hook for grit Mm -hmm. and doing explicit teaching of grit and then having them break out into small groups about grit and then do a response and a project on grit like why like that replacing much needed academic time and rigor in your standards with grit I think is kidding yourself like it's acting like oh if I teach grit then all of a sudden my students are going to be better at multiplication no what's going to help your students be better at multiplication is if you have a hook 
for multiplication. And then you teach a lesson on multiplication. And then they do small groups practicing their multiplication skills. And then when a student is struggling, because all students struggle, but when they have that, then call upon their qualities that most of my students already have due to their parents, due to um, the previous teachers in my building, due to the fact that they just are a determined, wonderful, you know, human being, then call upon that in that moment and be like, hey, like you got this. Mm-hmm. Don't don't let this problem get you like you can do it. What's our class motto? And they're like, they yell it and then yeah. they keep working like that, I think, is an appropriate application of grittiness we have with talking about grit is that it's kind of amorphous and i don't know that we all know what <laughs> we're talking, talking about. about i mean yes, even when even angela oh, duckworth you go back <laughs> i well, can help we can talk about that right no but i mean it. even angela duckworth you know devise these questions because i understand it as a scientist you can't measure right which you can't really identify but it's just like the way that she identified it she's even questioning even that, and other people are questioning that as well. Um, so it's like, how do, how does it really get objectively defined? Um, how can it really objectively be measured? Um, and thirdly, does it does it lead to success? Mm-hmm. If it really is passion, and persistence that lead to a long term goal. I am a tall woman with very long fingers, and I might love the piano, and I might be entranced by it, and I might have the stick-to-itiveness of Job in, t- in trying to learn how to play the piano, and I might love it, but if, if I don't have the ability, I don't have the ability. I'm only going to go so far. And so in that instance, grittiness, as that is defined that way. Passion and perseverance for a long-term goal. Yeah, right, I mean, but is, I may is, not accomplish that. Definition, yeah. Right, yeah, so d- as defined that way, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily accomplish that. And so you're saying it takes more than passion and perseverance. And, and yeah. I, and well, there's I think, a thing called yeah. ability, and yeah. that that is not passion or grit. It is not talent. It is not luck. It isn't how intensely you want something. Yeah, can this I, is from her website. Can I attempt to? This is from Angela. Angela. Yeah, can I attempt? Can I attempt to synthesize? Yeah, yeah, higher order thinking skill. Yeah, you're sitting in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, so much. Go for uh, it. Okay. What do I want to start? I'm gonna. Terribly misquote him, but DeRay McKesson came to UMKC and spoke like half a year ago and said something really profound, which was like, we can talk about loving on students and seeing the best in our students all the time, but like that love doesn't mean anything if we don't equip them with skills, right? So like we can talk about grit, and I'll give you an example, right? I have a student who um, is just, one, he's just, he, he's like the tortoise. He's great student, really sweet kid, tries his hardest, just works slowly, right? always engage in class, tries his hardest, and just doesn't consistently test well. Like, he just, he's just not good at taking tests. Like, mm-hmm. that's just not his thing. You should teach him grit. And, I'm teasing. <laughs> well, no, and, right, and one who buys into this, yeah. this narrative about grit would just suggest, oh, to get better at taking tests, you just need to take more tests. I've already given eight tests this year to this kid, mm-hmm. and he's making the same mistakes. But the moment I've shifted the way I teach, not, not shifted the way I teach, but I, like, assess him with something else, like a project or something that doesn't have time constraints, he knocks it out of the park, right? And so, and, and I can think of countless other examples across different situations where that applies, right? So I think, like, the narrative that, like, grit is going to solve problems is not valid. And I think a lot of people operate with the mindset that, like, oh, all of our problems will be solved if our students are just gritty. No, like, and that's why I say our students are already gritty. Like, I think most of them care about their education and by 
dealing with whatever realities they're currently dealing with and being there, I'm convinced that they have grit. For me, it's making sure, do you have the tools to be able to navigate solving a variety of problems? And so for my mind, for the longest one, I thought of grit, I thought of like craftiness or ingenuity, right? Like that's something I've always felt like I've had. So when I've felt like my back was against the wall, I could always find a different angle from which to attack a problem or to arrive at a solution in a different way. And I think those are the tools that we need to be focusing on equipping our students with and teaching them to use those when they are faced with tough and difficult situations, so right? So like, the, so you're talking about you. divergent thinking, really. Yes, yes. Yeah. Whereas like, when we just say the solution is grit, we're just telling, I think, some students in a lot of cases to just keep doing the same things. Right. Whereas like, in, in, some ways, in some ways, <laughs> students might actually be maybe being bold and being like, no, this is stupid. This is a colossal waste of my time. Why am mm-hmm. I taking this test that I've already taken when I don't feel like I'm going to do any better with it? I know this stuff. Let me show you a different way of knowing it. And so... Like that divergent thinking, right? That like problem solving mentality, I think in a lot of ways goes a grit against grit. Not not in the sense that like they're not trying something, but they're just not trying the same thing over and over. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that and, and, and yeah, I it enables that's a bit you, ranty. It doesn't it doesn't actually and I'm trying to piece it together. To do it. Y- yes. You don't teach grit, you call upon it as you teach the skill. Yes. Yeah. No, I think the teaching of grit happens in real time. Or we're getting at. I think the teaching of grit happens in real time. Like you don't need a separate Mm -hmm. lesson plan for it. You need to model it and then like name it explicitly and say, "Man, your positive thinking really helped you nail this skill that I'm teaching that's on the board that we're now gonna." And I think when teachers model problem solving themselves, like. I know that I've tried to do that in class. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm stumped about something, I like vocalize that out loud, yeah, yeah. and I'm Same. trying to figure Same. out oh like gosh. how else Maybe I can that's attack why it's something. An epidemic. Because teachers don't know how to teach their actual skills and standards better. And so then instead, they're like, man, my class is failing. What should I do? I know, teach this really ambiguous, super easily like conceptualized idea to my kids. Yeah. Like, if you have an entire class of students who have a lot of academic gaps and you don't know what to do to help them with their times tables and someone gives you a book and says, oh, you know what you should do? Teach them to be positive thinkers. That sounds way easier than Really getting into the but bowels the, of yeah. math thinking. But you're talking and, and about the problem in education. Cracking out manipulatives. And and whenever anybody rolls out a new concept and it gets a lot of press, it's kind of like, you know how that is. The school district's like, we're going we're gonna to all try this well, and, like a until, soft skill. until there's a big outcry. People love and soft then, skills. Right. Before we end this conversation, I did want to circle back to something Luann said towards the beginning of this conversation, mm-hmm. which was that you said your district had kind of rolled out grid a few years ago, and but things have boomeranged back since because now there's a bigger focus on just like uh, mental health right. and kids getting stressed out because maybe they're trying too hard. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that made me think of, interestingly, I, I go back to this same critique written by Ethan Reese of Stanford in the Washington Post. He he kind of put the term grit in a historical context, and actually mm. the term grit dates back to uh, the late 19th century and was devised as a way to motivate and inspire kids of more privileged backgrounds yeah, that, to toughen up, to learn how to face obstacles right. and challenges in the context of a, of a sheltered and comfortable life. Like you think of someone mm-hmm. like Teddy Roosevelt, right. um, even organizations like the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts came out of this popular idea that privileged kids needed the opportunity to, um, again, to get work. toughened up, to, right. to, to, to learn to strive for something. You're proud of what you can strive for. And uh, I wonder, you know, we've already talked about how a, a lot of your kids are privileged, but at the same time, they're feeling the pressures. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe some people call it affluenza maybe a little right. bit. But Whoa. So can you, what's the, I mean, 
What's the interplay between trying to inspire and motivate kids to try hard, but at the same time, it's difficult. I think I think teachers are caught because mm-hmm. you know you hear it on on one side. Teach the teach the kids to be grittier. How can you model that for kids? How can you you show that persisting in, will pay off in some way? And then you've got a kid that's just like, oh, oh I'm too stressed. I'm just I'm I'm I must I need to go see the nurse or the counselor right now because I'm too stressed and because. Um, they know that we are responsive to that. I mean, what what else what else can you do? Um, you've got to you've got to release the kid to go get I don't know the meds needed or or the counseling needed to kind of just sort of calm down. I mean, I'm I'm I work in a school where parents have come by during finals just to wave banners and say you can do it, oh. you can do it, kids. And I'm thinking. It's finals. I mean, like I had finals in high school. You had finals. It's like one of those rites of passage. But it's like everything at this point is so difficult that it's like and anything is like it's we're we need to encourage you because we're we're that afraid for you or we're that afraid of you or something. And so it's very confusing, I think. Um, for at least the teachers I know and, and yeah. for myself. You know, and Reese's, Reese's upshot is that he concludes by saying that this this grit discourse that is kind of embedded in this long-term historical context of, of, of being tailored towards an upper-class privileged set of people who are just trying to get toughened up uh, is that the upshot is that it, rom- it romanticizes poverty mm-hmm. um, as a character-building experience. And those are Ethan Reese's words. And I'll go on and I'll quote a little bit more at length. If privileged classes see poor children as potential role models for their own offspring, they risk losing sight of the enormous harms caused by a childhood without high-quality housing, health care, nutrition, etc. The grit discourse does not teach that poor children deserve poverty. It teaches that poverty itself is not so bad. Um, and that's Ethan Reese writing in the Washington Post. Uh, do you get that sense that, um, like, we're using... Um, I mean, like, David, you've, you've even said it, right? Your kids come to school with grit. Like, you don't need to teach them grit because yeah. they have to... I mean, can, can yeah. I... Um, so... Um, my partner shared this awesome article with me. Um, well, well-written article. It's not awesome because it's kind of sad. But um, the title is "Grit Is in Our DNA: Why Teaching Grit Is Inherently Anti-Black," um, and it's written by Bettina Love. It's on Education Week, and I just want to read this paragraph because I think it's pretty profound. This year marks 400 years since the first documented Americans arrived on U.S. soil in Point Comfort, Virginia. When we teach about slavery, if allowed to teach it at all. We frame it as a thing that happened to Africa. There's often no mention of Africa before slavery or what enslaved Africans endured to arrive in bondage in the New Americans, New Americas. To revisit that history is to tell a story of terror, trauma, labor, and of course, grit. Um, and unpacking that forward, um, um, excuse me for she says, but what if your long-term goals is fighting to live, fighting racism? It's 400 years long enough. You cannot measure this type of grit, nor should you ignore it. African Americans are resilient and gritty because we have to be to survive. But it is misleading, naive, and dangerous to remove our history on both sides of the water from the conversation about grit. And I think what we're all talking about is, I think, part of what grit is, but I also think the bigger issue with grit, and maybe this original definition from the author, is that like there wasn't enough context being grounded in historical examples and when you're talking about trying to teach grit to African-American students, if you don't look at how grit has already existed in the context of our people, then you're doing them a huge disservice, right? Because you're creating a narrative that not only have their ancestors not exhibited grit, but you're also not giving them the opportunity to be empowered by seeing 
their ancestors actually exhibiting it. So there's like Amen. there's layers to why I think teaching grit may not necessarily be a bad thing, but the idea is that especially if you're talking about doing it in urban schools with students of color without giving them any Acting like you're giving them a new skill. Yeah. Well, yes, basically. Exactly. Right. Whereas like, like you don't have this yeah. yet. Let me give yeah. it Yeah. And to this you. is super cheesy, but I, I, I'm going to drop this in here. But like when I watch Black Panther, um, which I need to rewatch Great again, movie. it's been too long. There's an epic moment where um, T'Challa's father, um, who's <laughs> not the best character, but like says something to his son. He says, you are a king. Right. And like. In that conversation, he was trying to underplay himself because he didn't feel like he was ready to step in the role of king, as king, right? And and his dad said that to him to empower him. And I think in the same way, right, being able to root grit in this history of seeing how far we've came and to where we've gotten is something that may empower students to push through when situations get difficult, right? But without bringing that prior knowledge, that context, and trying to teach grit, you're doing a huge disservice to a bunch of our students for a ton of reasons that I've already tried to outline. Well said, David. Well said. And we'll end there. Excellent <sighs> That's stuff. That's the wrap-up. Yeah. Well, before we go to Kids These Days, let's tell you some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. President Trump's proposed federal budget again aims to make major cuts to the Department of Education. <sighs> the administration proposes slashing $8.5 billion, roughly 12%. From the department, including money for after-school programs and teacher training. At the same time, Mr. Trump's plan includes $5 billion to fund tax credits for private school scholarships. Still, Mr. Trump's prospective budget and the cuts to education included in it are unlikely to pass the Democratic-controlled U.S. House. So for those of you sign on the other side of the glass, just keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. North Carolina lawmakers are debating a bill that would give teachers who carry guns to school raises. What? We're talking about, oh, my gosh. We talk about teacher pay all the time here. Here's a chance. No, 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 no. The measure would boost what? teachers' pay 5% if Bucket they complete basic police training, allowing them to carry a gun on campus. Are they going to pay 5%? for everybody to do it? Uh, good question. Are they going to provide a stipend? I will say a similar you? bill was proposed last year, but it died in committee. The Republican sponsor of this year's bill says incentivizing teachers to be armed at school is more cost-effective than hiring more school resource officers. Oh, <laughs> we should get our MDs and all be doctors, 5%, too, so that 5% we can is diagnose as they... Uh... God. 5% yeah. is tempting. Wow. No, yeah. uh, and then, finally, four okay. states... 5% is what? I said tempting. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's uh, insane. Four <laughs> states in which oh, teachers protested last year made substantial increases to their funding formulas, partly in response to teacher labor action. That's according to a new report released by the Nonpartisan Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. Still, the report notes that the level of funding in these states, Arizona, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and West Virginia, all remain well below 2008 or pre-recession levels of school funding. Those are some of the other interesting education stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Luann 
What are your kids into? Uh, my kids just will have come off a week of spring break. So what they were into before that was looking forward to spring break. <laughs> what they're not going to be happy about is that they actually all need to come back on Monday. And originally, we tape on a Sunday, by the way, so you'll be going to, back to school on Monday. Right. Yeah. But originally that was going to be uh, like a day off for them and a professional day for us. But because of the snow day situation and trying to make up time, students have to actually come back tomorrow. So no. there's lots of disgruntlement we over that. We had that on Friday. There's a lot of districts in the Kansas City area doing that kind of thing, like making up days either. I mean, mm-hmm. I know some districts have actually taken away some spring break days. We took away Good Friday. Yeah. Whoa. That's what Whoa. we did. Yeah, we did too. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had PD on Friday. Well, we were supposed to have PD this past Friday, but it was a regular school mm-hmm. day because gotcha. And you're saying, and you were saying, Luann, oh. that um, some kids, are, at least on social media, are threatening not to come to school tomorrow. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Ooh. Ooh la la. Yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, just, see what the, we'll just see what happens tomorrow, I guess. Uh, David, what are your kids into? Yeah. Um, on a more positive note. Um, <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, we have a dress code, but we have a really neat tradition um, that second semester for seniors, they can start rocking, uh, wearing um, attire from the colleges they get admitted into. And so we've been seeing lots of students wearing sweaters from different colleges and universities and like shirts and headbands and shorts and all kinds, like just random items. But it, but it's so cool to kind of see our kids excited about getting into colleges and just, you know, um, showing off, uh, you know, that, um, you know, they deserve to be celebrated that. And I think it's really cool for the underclassmen to be able to see that. So it's Take that, Lori Laughlin. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, to take it back to our first conversation. Nope. Um, And finally, Maddie, I saved you for last. What are your kids into? Um, Bean plants. We started growing some plants in science. and Classic elementary school activity. Several of them started germinating, and they are all very excited. And idioms. They like idioms, too. Not connected. The bean plants and idioms are not connected. They are. I can connect them right now. Do it. You're growing like a weed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, but you're starting Idiom. your spring oh, break. Oh, no, that so was a simile. I don't want to go simile. on. I don't want to go on air doing an incorrect <laughs> figurative language <laughs> example. Take that out. Oh. <laughs> that was wrong. Some white teeth now. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be gritty about it. I'm going to think of another one. You can ask me questions while I think, though, if, if I need to But you're going to be more. off for a week, so you're going to come back and your, your bean plants are going to be. Yeah, and then I'm going to plant some more knowledge in their brains. Oh. Boom! Idiom. There you go. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right. That was pretty good. I'm here for that. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Lou Ann Fox, David Persley, and Maddie Burkemper. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public no, Radio, where we take... Why are you still laughing? Um, what was I at? Okay. You can retake your ending <laughs> yeah. because of me. Yeah. And until next time, remember, kids, be, be nice, nice to your teachers. teachers. Oh, Whoa, is that a new thing? We can do that. And we, we, Luann was on the last time when it was. It actually happened to be an. It was an all. Not that this played into, but it was an all female panel, and they were like, "Let's do it together." I've always <laughs> wanted to, and I've been holding back. All right, well then, let's do it again. Until next time, remember, kids, be, be nice, nice to, to your, your teachers. teachers. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. That's so funny.